Years ago, a United States Navy submarine cruising off the coast of Massachusetts was rammed by a ship. The sub sank immediately, trapping the entire crew, crew in an iron grave. All attempts at rescue proved futile. Toward the end of the operation, one of the divers placed his ear next to the submarine's iron hull and he heard a tapping noise from the inside. He recognized it as Morse code. Suddenly, the message formed. Is there any hope? And this is the plight of the whole human race. For the world that we live in today is a sunken sub. People live their lives in the iron hall of emptiness. There's scant air to breathe. There's no means of escape. Thinking folks look for a hatch, a way to the surface, a way to rise from the bottom, but to no avail. We are trapped in a sunken sub called sin. Put your ear to the hull and you'll hear the tapping. Is there any hope? I'm sure you've noticed, life is hard. If life was all fastballs, we'd bat a thousand. But just about the time we settle in on the velocity, life throws you a curve or it tosses a change up. You're whiffing again. Circumstances leave us confused. The best team doesn't always win. The cheater gets the highest grade. Unethical businessmen receive the promotion. Good people end up sick. Little babies are born deformed. Innocent women are abused. Churches are burglarized, and in parts of the world, pastors are even beaten. Life is hard, and each generation faces the same old enemies. Injustice mocks us. Sickness shames and degrades us. Acts of nature torture us. Evil preys upon us. Sin stunts what could have been. All the while, death sits back smugly, knowing it will get the last laugh. Life never seems to behave itself. We can't tame it. It won't stay on its leash. Every generation has been tempted to tap, is there any hope? Yet for one brief moment, long ago, the situation was different. A ray of light shined into the deepest ocean. God sent a diver down from heaven. The heavenly frogman found the hatch to this hopeless world and he popped it open. He shined a light to those trapped in the darkened hull. The divers swam into our world to show us the way out. For one brief moment, hope opened the hatch. And people could see salvation bubbling up on the surface. And this hope's name was Jesus. A man named John first saw the light. He sensed in Jesus the opportunity to escape the hall of sin. He baptized the diver in the river Jordan. Jesus came to earth on a rescue mission. John was appointed by God to assist in the effort. 
John came out of the wilderness blazing the trail, preparing the way. He pointed out men's sin and then he pointed men to the Savior. But when John was tossed into prison, he became puzzled. He knew that Jesus had been sent to free us from these age-old enemies. Jesus had come to upset the apple cart, to rock the boat, to make some waves, to open the hatch. Jesus came to offer man a real alternative to life in the iron hull. But if Jesus brings hope, why is his sidekick John still in prison? At the time, John was jailed in the Dead Sea fortress of Machaerus, the Jewish Alcatraz, a dungeon just as confining as the iron hull of a sunken world. How can John be sure Jesus is truly the deliverer if he himself has been left trapped in a prison of despair? You see, John's faith had a serious wobble. He needs an anchor to tie off on. And so John sends messengers with questions for Jesus. We read of John's inquiry and Jesus' reply here in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And as Jesus said it, I'm sure that he chuckled. I hear his tone of voice as light, even laughable. He spoke as you would when you point out the obvious. In essence, Jesus answers John's messengers, Look around! Pay attention to what's happening! Every day, man, blind eyes see! Paraplegics walk! Lepers, leprous spots vanish! What was rotten flesh turns as fresh as a baby's behind! Corpses are raised to life. Funerals are turned into parties. Poor people have plenty. What do you think? Does this look like business as usual? In the Gospels, we read about Jesus entering the temple and turning over tables. Well, let me tell you. Jesus spent his entire ministry turning over tables. Jesus rocked the boat and shook things up. Iron chains that had never been broken. Jesus snapped in two. Big bullies like leprosy and demons and paralysis and death. Vicious gang members who had ruled the hood for millenniums were tucking tail and running at the very sight of Jesus. Boy, I wish that we had time to review the previous three chapters or about the 12 months prior in Jesus' life. For in the annals of history, there has never been a year as exciting and as surprising as the year 30 A.D. Normally, lepers were colonized. Leprosy was the AIDS of the ancient world. No one dared get near a leper, let alone touch them, except Jesus. Jesus laid his hands on the lepers. 
His love and acceptance healed the heart of the leper before his power healed the disease of leprosy. Demons are scary and spooky creatures. They have a knack for embodiment. They like to homestead in humans. And when they enter, they're awful hard to evict. And yet all Jesus had to do was give the order and the demons obeyed. Jesus also drove out fevers. In 30 AD, the cell of Tylenol took a nosedive. Jesus made a blind man see and caused a deaf man to hear. The fire inspectors were about to find Jesus for violating the handicap regulations when he told the crippled man to take up his mat and walk, and he did. To top it off, Jesus performed an even greater miracle. He forgave the man of his sins. Recall the showdown at Jairus' house? The leader of the synagogue had a little girl who had died. Crime tape covered the room. The coroner was on the scene. CSI was investigating the work of a serial killer named Death. But Jesus pushed the crowd aside and he stalked into the room and he stared Death in the face. And then he turned to the little girl and he said, Honey, arise. And suddenly that cold, clammy corpse became a warm, bubbly, talkative, energetic middle school girl again. I'm sure she started texting immediately. (laughs) Jesus robbed the morticians of their fees. He turned awake into a party. 30 AD, man, what a year. And when we look closely at Jesus' year of miracles, we see three groups of people begin to emerge. First were his disciples, those who genuinely wanted to follow Jesus. But there were two other groups to surface that year. Those who marveled and those who murmured. The multitudes and the aristocrats. You see, the multitudes saw the miracles of Jesus and they stood in awe of him. The priests or the aristocrats, they saw the miracles of Jesus and they were scared to death of him. After Jesus had cast out yet another demon, Matthew 9 verse 33 states, And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. One group marveled at his miracles. They had much to gain from such power. The other group grew jealous. They had much to lose if Jesus got his way. The year 30 AD and its miracles drew a line in the sand. You see, from here on, the multitudes in awe of Jesus tried to manipulate him. On one occasion, the crowd desired to make Jesus a king. They wanted to use Jesus to overthrow the Romans. You see, the mob's intention was to mold Jesus after their own political designs and force him to play their game. This is why Jesus went out of his way to avoid any publicity that would egg on a crowd. He was leery of the mob's motive. He would never be manipulated. And from here on, the priests who were scared of Jesus, they tried to intimidate him. This group argued with Jesus over religion. They wanted to trip him up doctrinally 
so that they could brand him a heretic and dismiss his authority. They concocted vicious rumors and set theological traps to try to trick Jesus. In the end, these were the people who prosecuted Jesus before Pilate. You know, it's interesting. At first, the multitude seemed to be admirers of Jesus. These were the people that came out to greet him on Palm Sunday, who laid the palm branches down on the road, who hailed him, their Messiah. Ironically, as they cheered Jesus, the priests plotted his assassination. In the end, both groups cried out for his blood and demanded that Jesus be crucified. Both camps of people turned out to be Jesus' enemies. And we need to understand that 2,000 years later, these same two groups are still around. People react to Jesus the same way today they did in 30 AD. Some people stand in awe of his power. They start out as admirers. And they show Jesus great respect. But ultimately, they want to manipulate the master for their own ends. They try to use Jesus to fulfill their agenda. Other people are scared to death of his power. And their goal is to try to intimidate the voices that speak for him. Or avoid him the best they can. Think back to 30 AD and the multitude that sat on the grassy slopes of Galilee. It was late in the day. Everybody was hungry. These were the folks who saw Jesus take five loaves and two fish and cater a meal for thousands. What power. But you see, here's how a selfish mind twists. Rather than recognize that his power belongs to him, to accomplish his purposes and to do with as he pleases. Selfishness begins to plot how Jesus can be used for its own ends, for its own purposes. How can we parlay his power into political or economic muscle? And this is no different than what people today do to Jesus. To a manipulator, Jesus is nothing more than a power source to be exploited. Hey, you can follow Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. It always amazes me why people gravitate toward preachers who are obviously taking advantage of them. Smooth talkers appear on television and they say, Listen to what God says through me. Mail your offering to me. And I guarantee God will send you a husband. Or make you millions. Or heal your sickness. Don't people see that's just a racket? That the preacher's only padding his own pockets? Why do folks let themselves be exploited in the name of God? Well, here's why. Because they're no different than the preacher. They're also trying to exploit God. Their worship, it's nothing more than a bribe. They serve to be served. They scratch God's back so he'll return the scratch. They're trying to manipulate Jesus so that he'll bless them and fulfill their agenda. And Jesus don't play those games. You see, to the manipulator, Jesus is someone to be exploited. But to the intimidator, Jesus is someone to be feared. He was a threat to their authority. These powerful priests in Jerusalem, 
They made a handsome living off religion. They controlled the temple tax. And they made money off sacrifices. So when Jesus cleansed the temple, he cut into their profits. He put an end to their charade. Jesus was a danger to their power and the lifestyle it financed. This is why the priests hated Jesus and they conspired to kill him. He was a threat to their power grab. And in their mind, he needed to be eliminated. And not much, again, has changed today. For power-hungry people, Jesus is still a source of indigestion. He's an obstacle. You see, for folks who aspire to be on top, Jesus gets in the way. For you can climb over everyone else, but not Jesus. For people who style themselves as a captain of their own ship and like to call their own shots, Jesus is a problem. He's an uninvited intrusion. There is only one Lord. Either it's Jesus or it's you, but it can't be both. For many people today, Jesus cramps their style and nags their conscience. He's the burr under their saddle. Jesus comes along with his absolutes and his insistence on truth, and he makes us uncomfortable. People will pretend to be a Christian as long as it's cool. But when Jesus initiates changes or makes hard demands, they're quick to seek some distance. Most people, their idea of worship is a tip of the hat on holidays, not the laying down of one's life. You see, Jesus rocks the boat just a little too much. When Zach went away to college, he got used to living on his own. He came home. When he wanted to, he did as he pleased. He set his own hours, made his own priorities. And that's what college is about. But when he came back home to live, we had a talk. If he wanted the benefits of living under our roof, he had to abide by our rules. He had to live under our authority. We were, to ha we were happy to have him as a family member, but Kathy and I made clear that we weren't interested in a roommate. And neither is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. On heaven's 1040 form, Jesus is listed as the universe's head of household. Jesus calls the shots. And he will never allow anyone to use him or excuse him away. That means whenever Jesus moves in, he takes charge and he makes changes. All for the better, mind you. But don't think for a second he's going to enter your life and just drift into the woodwork and keep a low profile and mind his manners and take the garbage out when he's told and only speak when he's spoken to and politely do his chores and clean up the spilt milk. That's not Jesus. The master is neither blackmailed or blackballed. You know, it's ironic. But in the end, both groups, the multitudes and the priests, proved to be supporters of the status quo. Neither wanted real change. You know, manipulators and intimidators both prefer for Jesus to leave life alone. I'm sure the multitudes, they wanted Jesus to add all of the good stuff to their lives. I mean, the priests, they thank God for the life they had. 
But neither group wanted Jesus to take charge of their life and reshape it and redirect its course. It always surprises me that when the rubber meets the road, most people are content with things just as they are. Oh, they like to complain. They wish things were better. But most people get accustomed to the rut. They like the status quo. They would rather hold on to the familiar, even if it makes them miserable. Most folks will resist change, even if that change is for the better. Once we had a homeless man coming to our church, and one night, the mercury, it it dipped dangerously low. And I got real concerned for Dave. In fact, I drove over to his shanty shack to pick him up and bring him to my house for that night. But he refused to come. He chose a frozen hut over a warm house because he didn't want to give up his vices. Not even for a night. At my house, Kathy wasn't going to let him smoke or drink. And he didn't want to come. He'd rather sit out in the frozen hut. Sinful lifestyles end up a prison. They keep us trapped in the iron hall. There are people today who've accepted the emptiness and pain of a life trapped in sin. It's the only life they've known. It's all they think there is. Along the way, people accumulate toys and diversions that break up the monotony, that muffle the inward rumbling of their empty soul. Folks stay so busy with amusements that they don't have time to ponder the meaning of life. You see, people can get so used to the sunken hull of the submarine that even though they're dying on the inside, they've created this artificial life in the iron hull. And for the short while that it lasts, they're naive but happy campers. It is the brave, relentless few that keep tapping. Is there any hope? Understand, without acknowledging or admitting it, most humans are staunch supporters of the status quo. Thus, they are leery of a boat rocker. Many so-called Christians are devoted to Jesus, but only on their own terms. They'll follow Jesus as long as it's convenient or advantageous. They don't mind being a Christian as long as they remain in control. But that's not the way Christianity works. For when Jesus climbs on board, he rocks the boat. He takes charge. Jesus sets up his own whole new status quo. In 1961, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, they hosted an exhibit that showcased the artistic talents of the famed French painter, Henri Matisse. But one of the paintings, entitled The Sailboat, it hung upside down in the gallery for 47 days before anyone noticed the mistake. Now imagine that. A masterpiece on exhibit hanging upside down. And none of New York's art connoisseurs even noticed. And yet this was the state of the world for thousands of years before Jesus came. Life was upside down. But no one noticed. Jesus came on the scene and he saw the evil and the injustice and the prejudice and the pain. And Jesus started flipping pictures topsy-turvy. Jesus pointed to the sinner who beat his chest and was sorry for his sin. 
And said his prayer would be heard over the self-righteous hypocrite who thought God owed him. Jesus counted the widow's might as more valuable to God than the rich man's tip. Jesus saw that death had robbed a woman of her son. Jesus resurrected the boy and restored him to, her, to his mom. The priest painted God as harsh and petty and vindictive. Jesus had a vision of a loving God who as a father rushed out to welcome his wayward son home. Jesus turned what was upside down right side up. Don't look for Jesus to prop up the status quo. He rocks the boat and he makes the world better. And this is what Jesus is about today. When he enters a life, he turns it on its ear. He takes hopeless, hapless, helpless lives and he flips them around. The risen Christ doles out new love and new desires and new direction and new perspective. He puts a smile on your face and a bounce in your step and a laugh on your lips and a joy in your heart. Jesus establishes new ties and he embellishes you with new gifts. He forgives and he heals and he restores dignity. Jesus opens spiritual eyes and ears as well as physical ones. He fills up our emptiness and he causes love to overflow from our lives to others. Jesus brings us out of death and darkness into his marvelous life and light. My point is, Jesus doesn't care much for the status quo. Jesus is a boat rocker. He knows that this world is an iron hull stuck on the bottom and we desperately need fresh air. Jesus wants to help us out and pull us up. Here's good news, my friend. Jesus loves you so much that he invites you to come to him just as you are. But he also loves you so much that he doesn't let you stay that way for long. The status quo has got to go. Jesus' goal is to take your life and flip it right side up. Understand, both the multitudes and the priests, they got tired of the boat rocker. And so they joined together to throw him overboard and left him to drown. You see, this proves that neutrality toward Jesus is never an option. In the end, Jesus always forces us to choose sides. When it became apparent to those who stood in awe of his power that they couldn't control him, they decided to kill him. When it became apparent to those who were scared of his power that he wouldn't back down, they too tried to put him down. Both groups combined to crucify Jesus. While Jesus was alive, they were never able to nail him down. He was too wild, too heavenly, too unpredictable, too dangerous for their taste. So they nailed him to a cross. Jesus never wore the crown of political clout they ordered for him. And so they thrust on his head a crown of thorns. Jesus was this free bird, a free spirit, like a bird flying through the sky. But the Jews didn't like him flying over their heads, reminding them of what they had chosen not to be. They couldn't capture the bird, and so they shot him down. It's been said, each of us is born with a body, a mind, a soul, and a handful of nails. And when a man dies... He is never found with nails left clutched in his hands or stuffed in his pockets. 
when we resist the gentle ways and the loving changes that Jesus desires to work in our lives, we are in essence pounding in another nail. Are we followers of Jesus or are we just defenders of the status quo? I am sure that when they laid Jesus in the tomb and rolled that stone over the mouth of the grave, they said to themselves, that's it. We finally put Jesus in his place. That stone was the same as throwing away the key. Everyone assumed that they would never have to worry about Jesus upsetting the apple cart again. Now we can get back to business as usual. But Jesus wasn't finished shaking up the status quo. In his lifetime, Jesus had boxed a few rounds with death and illness and paralysis and blindness. And he wasn't finished with the fight. When Jesus rose from the dead, he not only rocked the boat, this time he capsized it. Jesus knocked out death. After the resurrection, the world was never the same. Death had been declawed. A new hope had been born. A new power had been unleashed. Jesus began to populate eternity. The risen Lord Jesus came out of an empty tomb to fill our empty hearts. And Jesus keeps rocking the boat. In China, in the Islamic world, across Latin America, here at home, Jesus is alive. He is changing lives and shaping culture and building his kingdom. In a recent book, Ravi Zacharias, he gives some compelling evidence. Toward the middle of the 20th century, after communists had destroyed all of the Christian libraries in China, Chairman Mao made the following statement. Christianity has been permanently removed from China, never to return. How ironic that on Easter Sunday 2009, a leading English newspaper in Hong Kong published a picture of Tiananmen Square. The famous banner of Mao was replaced in the picture with the face of Jesus. And the caption read, Christ is risen. Before, before the communists took over in China, there were less than a million Protestant Christians. Now, after 60 years of communism, estimates are that there are at least 50 million Christians. Today, young people in Islamic lands risk their life to attend Bible study. Zacharias writes, I've talked to CEOs in Islamic nations who testify of seeing Jesus in visions and dreams and wonder what it all means. Recently, Christians in Concepcion, Chile, began to oppose the sex trade in their city. The town's largest brothel is now a church. A rehabilitation center for sex workers has been opened. There's been great progress. So much so that the prostitutes are now suing the Christians for lost wages. Don't worry, they're all going to get saved soon anyway. After visiting Africa, a British atheist, Matthew Paris, made a confession. He says, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. I've become convinced of the enormous contribution Christian evangelism makes in Africa. I used to avoid this truth, but Christians black and white heal the sick, teach people to read and write. Only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. Here's my point. All over the world today, 
The boat rocker is still at it. Wherever Jesus goes, he shakes up the status quo. He makes life better. Jesus still turns lives topsy-turvy. He blazes new trails and teaches new ways. Three days after they killed him, the boat rocker was back on deck. The risen Lord Jesus will never be manipulated or intimidated, much less annihilated. You can't manage him or mar him or murder him. Jesus isn't a man that can be toned down or tied up or turned off. Hey, you will save yourself wasted years if you realize Jesus won't let you get comfortable without him. Did you hear about the little girl who was so thrilled about Easter? She was so excited. For weeks she had been looking forward to the special day. She couldn't wait to go to church. Finally, her dad asked if she knew the meaning of Easter. She said, I sure do. He asked her again, well, honey, what does Easter mean? She raised her arms, and then she cupped her hands around her mouth, and then she mustered the strongest voice she could, and she shouted, surprise! That's it. What does Easter mean? It means surprise, death. Surprise, sin. Surprise, illness. Surprise, depression. Surprise, you wicked world. Surprise, status quo. Jesus has beaten you all. And Jesus now gets the last laugh. Easter means surprise all you people who want to control Jesus. You can't. Surprise all you folks who want Jesus to back down. He won't. Surprise all you who are trapped on the bottom and won't out. Hope is still alive. Remember, there were three groups of people around in Jesus' day. There were the multitudes and the aristocrats, and they both crucified Jesus. But there was a third group that emerged from that year of miracles. They were called disciples. They stood in awe of Jesus, and in many ways they were fearful of Jesus, but the difference was their response. For rather than manipulate or intimidate, their motive was to dedicate. And there are also disciples today. People who follow Jesus with a pure motive. Rather than want to use Him for their own ends or excuse Him from any governing role in their life, they love Jesus. And they bow their will to Him daily. A disciple wants to live his life with Jesus and by Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus told John in Matthew 11 verse 6, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. In other words, happy is the person who doesn't mind letting Jesus call the shots. Happy is the person who's not ashamed to admit that he's on the bottom of the ocean and needs help to rise to the surface. Are you trapped in the iron hull this morning? Is life so hard you need some help? Happy is the person who welcomes Jesus and invites his changes in their life. Don't be afraid to let Jesus overturn a few apple carts in your life. He knows what he's doing. Today, why not invite the boat rocker to be the captain of your ship? Perhaps you're not a Christian, but you want to be. Maybe you are a Christian, but you haven't been what you ought to be. Together, let's pray a prayer this morning. Let's ask the boat rocker to shake some things up in our life.
Let's ask Him to come on board and be our captain. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for this day and for all the people who have gathered here this Easter Sunday morning. Lord, I know that each person in this room today is precious in Your sight. They were created in Your image. Jesus died on the cross for them. They are the object of your affections and your love. Each person here in this room tonight is an eternal soul. They're more than flesh and blood. They are an eternal soul that will live forever. The only question is where? Will they spend eternity in heaven? Or will they spend eternity in hell? And the choice is theirs. Lord, I pray that they'll make the right choice. I'll pray, I pray that they'll invite the boat rocker on board. They'll let you, Lord Jesus, be the captain of their life. I pray they'll make the right decision today. In fact, if you'd like to pray a simple prayer with me, I invite you to do it now. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming into this world taking my sin on your shoulders, dying in my place, then rising from the dead to fill my heart and to take charge in my life. This morning, I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for you to be my Lord. Take over my life. Fill it with your truth and your love and your peace and your joy. Just fill it with all you got for me, Lord. I give my life to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.